Needless to say, you'll get a kick out of this podcast. I'm Amit Power. Ipacks, genics, and cuties, oh my. Today we pull back the curtain on knee blocks. I'm Jeff Gadsden. And this is Block It Like It's Hot. Yo, 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 what up, Dr. G? We're here to drop episode three. I told my daughters I wasn't going to do that. How you doing, Jeff? <laughs> That's I love the rhyming so early on in the podcast episode. Excellent. How are you, man? Well, Good. listen, it's Happy New Year, man. How yeah, on earth did you get me up so early to record this? <laughs> hey, New Year, New You. That's true. That's true. Absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm assuming you're recovering from some glamorous, fancy bash last night, New Year's Eve. Well, let's just say my voice is uh, is a little hoarse now. And by that, I don't mean the small four-legged pony type thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, we had a big... Po- <laughs> Thank you. That was a delayed joke. I thought you could leave me there hanging. No, we had, no. A, we, had a, we had a great party with some friends. I've got to give a shout out to these guys, the Soulsbees. They know who they are. We had a great party with them. And um, I'm here this morning feeling ever so slightly sorry for myself. How about you, man? <laughs> yeah, we had a fun night. My oldest cooked us up a mess of chicken wings and this amazing peanut butter pie. And then we played some board games. So uh, yeah, tons of good food and lots of laughs with the fam. I love that. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Ooh, um, I think this, you know, my, my daughter Gigi got a tumbling, this inflatable tumbling mat for Christmas. It's really cool, actually. She, you can do cartwheels and okay. all, kinds of, all kinds of stuff on it. And I realized very quickly when she was like dragging me into this thing, how inflexible I am. So <laughs> uh, she's like, come on, dad, show me the splits. And and I'm like, this is I, you're, you, what you're seeing right now, Gigi, is me doing the splits. And she's like, that's just embarrassing. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get more flexible in 2023. In fact, my 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 son Holt, who's also doing some gymnastics stuff, we have made a pact, and I'll state it publicly here uh, that in 2023 we're gonna learn how to do backflips. Oh so. my goodness me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, either I'll end up with a horrible injury and uh, <laughs> uh, or I will Holt and I will knock off the backflip challenge. That is that sounds pretty impressive. That sounds very impressive. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> How about you? Any resolutions? Well, you know, um, one of them is to get is to get healthy and uh, to make a uh, make some time and effort to get a bit more healthy. So I'm working on that. Uh, and the other one, which is a little bit more uh, lighthearted, is um, is to get better at remembering dad jokes. Now, um, we had some comments from Twitter about the fact that we didn't feature as many dad jokes as they thought um, uh, we might do. And one of the issues is I'm really terrible at remembering them. But you know, I'm, I'm going to share one with you that is related to the pie one that I put out on the socials. Um, Jeff, did you hear of the man who robbed a pie shop? He was put into custody. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. It's all in the delivery. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, that was great. That was good. I like that. Custody. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what, you tell me you got a dad joke to go in in return to that. Come on. Okay. Um, I actually, I do have a pie related dad joke. Okay. What do they call a pie who goes to the gym? A buff pastry. Okay, that's great. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, how's your week been? Well, it's been um, it's been an interesting week. Um, you know, I um, I had a PPI. Ah, uh, I'm I'm sorry. Oh, a what? Come on, Jeff. You must know a PPI. It's a Peter Pointer injury. P- P- Peter Peter Pointer injury. O- okay. Come on, you um, must have heard would- of that. 
You've heard I would of a not pointer, have, right? That wasn't where I was going with that, PPI. <laughs> uh, lots of other things were going through my head. Uh, a proton pump inhibitor. Okay. But well, you know, you... I injured myself with a capsule of emeprazole <laughs> or, or something, right? <laughs> what? Do, tell, tell me about your... Your Peter Pointer. Well, listen, it's slightly embarrassing. I tr- my Peter Pointer is, of course, my index finger. It comes from that song, Peter Pointer, Peter Pointer, where are you? You know the song, right? I do now. Okay, well, anyway, <laughs> I used my Peter Pointer to open a door. Instead of using my full hand, I was holding something in the other hand. And as a as a result of that, I, I, I suffered a slight injury. But but don't worry, I'm okay now. Do you want a block for that? That work. <laughs> The PPI block. That sounds great. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm all good. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, man. Did it stop you from sabering open a bottle of champagne last night? No, no. I was able to carry on functioning as normal just with a slightly uh, sore PP. Oh, slightly sore PP. Oh, no. Uh, Can we delete that? Different episode. Uh oh. You should see a doctor for that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> moving on. Listen, I'll tell you why this week was cool for me. Um, I bumped into uh, the anaesthetist with whom I performed my very first ever awake surgery under auxiliary brachial plexus block. He is a legend at Guy's and St. Thomas's called Leslie D'Souza. Wow. Wow. If that So that's really cool. If that was your first, that must have been ages ago. Tell me, <laughs> tell me you at least used a nerve simulator back then. <laughs> Yes, you're quite right, Jeff. It was a long time ago, but I can go one better. No, we didn't use a nerve stimulator. We used a sharp 23-gauge needle, two 50cc syringes connected via a three-way tap, and paresthesia. But I've got to tell you what, man, that block worked to treat. It was my first foray into wake upper limb surgery. Um, and I loved it. And I owed Dr. D'Souza a lot to get me into the into regional from that point of view. But that's not quite the way I do it nowadays. 10 to 15 cc seems to suffice. <laughs> that's a, I, I, I sometimes tell my trainees stories of how just how much local we used for interscaling. Uh, you know, we, we used... 45 mils of local anesthetic and i'll say hey put put your hand on the side of your neck and feel what that feels like now imagine shoving two 20 mil syringes up there and it's just the local went everywhere we got every nerve in the neck sometimes both sides i'm (laughs) i'm trying to think back i i think some of my early interscalings um even with ultrasound actually we were we were dropping in some large volumes and actually now uh when i look at when we when you're watching what you're delivering under ultrasound, there's no way you could deposit 40 cc's. I mean, I've literally run out of space by the time I get to my prime number of local anesthetic, but we'll we'll cover prime numbers on another episode. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Well, you know, we've had some great questions and interaction online. I've, I've been loving the comments on, on the socials. Should we do some shout outs? Absolutely. Go, go on, Jeff. Who's the first one from? I've been seeing lots of these comments coming through yeah. on our, on our yeah. YouTube and our Twitter as well. So who's the first one from? So we had um, we had uh, some comments about the Marmite of blocks, the ESP. Oh, yes. One from our friend Amina Ben Youssef from Algeria. Oh, hey, Amina. Yes. Hey, Amina. Who says that she's had amazing results with the ESP in non-surgical applications like thoracic trauma and mm. chronic pain. Uh, says it also works great for, for surgical indications, but uh, that, that was that's a good point. With There's lots of... In fact, the first ESP case report was in a chronic pain that's application, right. if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so great, great to hear. Let's see. Uh, here's an email we got from Diane in Arizona. Really enjoyed episode one. 
now I'm trying to find a place to get a savory pie in Scottsdale. Okay. Well, uh, good luck to you, Diane. I hope I hope. Let us know. Let us know if you do end up finding that savory pie. Mm, savory pie. Did you have Did you have any good mince pies over oh, Christmas? Oh man, I had so many mince pies. You don't want to know. But I can't tell you oh. where the best one was from because they were all mixed up into a big plate, so I couldn't tell who the the best manufacturer was. But we we pied out. We totally pied we, out. Oh, we had some. We had a whole bunch of homemade mince oh, wow. pies. Yeah, that was it was good. Mm. They're all gone now. Uh, they're all gone. Um, but uh, Diane says, can you talk about abdominal blocks and which one is best? I'm confused about QL versus tap versus rectus sheath and several others. That's that's an excellent question. And I think we get we talk about this with our trainees a lot. You know, mm-hmm. for what what abdominal incision do you use block A versus B versus C? And so, yeah, let's talk about we'll talk about that on a, on a future episode. That'd be for a sure. great episode. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you know, Jeff, we also got some comments about the presence or absence of apostrophes from Chris King, aka the Chris, um, one of my fellows who helped inspire us with this, getting this podcast up and running. Yeah, he dropped us in it with that apostrophe thing, man. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you know, I was we we made the graphic for our thing, and and uh, the font that I chose to use for these sort of graffiti thing just didn't have apostrophes so yes yes we miss an apostrophe there but uh thanks th- thanks chris the chris the chris we will exactly. yeah we just don't care about apostrophes no now listen jeff there's one more shout out that's just popped up that we must talk about we've got a message from kim bayless uh, and she's been following us on twitter and she um asked us uh three questions uh, and I think we probably, before we get stuck into the meat of the podcast, we've got to talk about this. So the, yeah. the questions are, what was the first block that you ever performed? What's your favorite block? And what's your most difficult to perform? Good questions. So what's the first block you ever performed? Uh, yeah, interscaling brachial plexus block. And I remember it because I made such a mess of this block. Mm-hmm. This block. It, I was a, probably a PGY. I was a second year trainee. Okay. And I'd never seen a nerve block before. I would, you know, we're just doing sort of basic cases at that point. And then, then one of my attendings, consultants, a guy, guy named Stan Herman, uh, this is at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. He says, he says, I'm going to show you a nerve block and i i thought oh man this is going to be good i've not i've read about this i haven't seen so he's like all right it gets everything set up for me and I'm, he's he's going to do it he's going to show me how to show me how it's done i'm just going to sort of watch and help it gets everything sort of sterilely prepped and draped and everything like that and he says hand me the needle and i with bare hands pick up this needle and i'm manhandling the the shaft of this needle and like t- completely contaminating it. And I, I turn around and he's like, that was our only needle in the oh, hospital. So, um, which seems odd now. I would only have one needle, but anyway, it, so, so we had to stop and like get a needle from across the street or something like that. Oh but, gosh. uh, yeah, that was my, not a, not an auspicious start to a regional career, but, uh, I did better. I did improve over time. Excellent. Well, listen, you know, I, the funny thing is my first block was an interscaling two. Um, and I this is before ultrasound. This is with nerve stimulator. And I was practicing the power multi-directional needle insertion technique in order to get some kind of recognizable twitch. I don't know what the acronym for that would be. Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time <laughs> moving the needle around to get the twitches. And it just and and then the, my my consultant took over and just literally the needle went through the skin. Poof, 
first time, beautiful twitch. So I, I realized at that point that um, I had to put some work at regional analyses if I wanted to get good at it. So that was my first. <laughs> nice. Jeff, what about your favorite block? Uh, I love a good popliteal sciatic block. Ooh. The thing I love about it is when you get that spread inside the perineural sheath and then you, you know, you, you see it sort of expanding up and you can tell, oh, there's the sheath. It's sort of surrounding the, the nerves. And then you do your victory lap, as I call it. You sort of slide the probe down towards the knee and watch the nerves mm-hmm. se- separate. And each, each individual nerve has its own little owl eye of local anesthetic around it and then come back up. It's it's a beautiful thing. No, it really is. Okay, I like that. Well, I, it probably is not going to come as any surprise to you that the paravertebral block or paravertebral what pair of t-brawl how do you guys say it paravertebral i can't even say how you guys say it because i can only say paravertebral the paravertebral block is my my accent no no pair of t-brawl which is what linkedin uh, translated it as but yeah that is my favorite block the paravertebral block the king of blocks yeah hard hard to beat a hard to beat a pvb yeah and then lastly uh kim's question what is the most difficult block uh what do you find the most difficult block to perform you know, I'm probably going to get some heat for saying this. Uh, so feel free to roast me for this answer. But I I, I find a tap block oh can be just gosh. frustratingly <laughs> frustratingly challenging at times. And, you know, you, you get a decent image and then the needle comes in and you're either too shallow and you're in internal oblique or you're too deep and you're in transversus. And I find myself going back and forth trying to establish that plane and it just doesn't unzipper in the nice in a nice way and so so i have i have frustrating tap blocks sometimes well i think you know i think the truth can be said about many fascial plane blocks right because you're trying to open up that space you're trying to split the fascia get that classic unzippering when you can't achieve that it's very frustrating and i think probably one of the best unzippering videos i have ever seen in my life is your super inguinal fascia iliaca block that you did on the duke wrap that is like beautiful to see that unzippering and um, so I, I get why you you say a tap block might be difficult you know the block that i sometimes struggle with what's that? i sometimes struggle with with quadratus lumborum blocks because sometimes just when i think i'm right there i can't quite get the needle trajectory right or open up that space and i'm around the paranephric space and I, you know i i don't think it's as easy as build um and maybe i'm a little bit scared i haven't quite we'll talk about this in our abdominal episode i haven't quite ventured too much into the world of uh, of anterior quadratus lumborum blocks because i'm nervous about that whole thing but i find ql's difficult sometimes yeah same i i think uh especially if you get a larger patient correct so we you know we i live in the biscuit belt (laughs) the many times we'll we'll say uh you know what let's just not even try a ql for this patient we'll do an esp or something else instead okay jeff well listen uh we you know we procrastinated long enough you know what i've called this episode right i need to know more about knees see what i did there oh good one (laughs) so we're going to be talking about knees and i kind of figured it'd be really great if we discussed the spectrum of things we can do for analgesia for total knee arthroplasty going from the minimalistic approach right the way through to the bespoke nuanced all singing all dancing blocktober tastic 24 (laughs) injection approach (laughs) 24 and counting yeah let's do it this is this is a supposed to be a 30 minute podcast or 40 maybe i i we don't have two hours to discuss all of, but no this could be fun let's do this okay all right so let me ask you a question if you were having your knee replaced today what would you want okay so this answer will definitely have 
changed over the course of my career. So I think back to when I first started in anaesthetics and I used to introduce myself as the baby SHO in anaesthesia, you know, it was not unusual for patients to have an epidural for total knee replacement. And I used to see it was great to do an epidural. Patients would be comfortable. Sometimes we even gave them a GA as well as an epidural. Uh, and they woke up and they were comfortable. I've then seen that transition to a spinal and then a GAs with a really hardcore femoral and sciatic nerve blocks. And those patients weren't feeling anything for at least 24 to 48 hours. Uh, and right. then I've seen general anaesthesia with just local infiltration. And I can tell you for sure, in answer to your question, what I definitely don't want is just the general anesthesia with local infiltration because it's so variable, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think I would be cool with either a spinal or a GA, but the thing that I would um, definitely want to have part and parcel is I want that 24 injection multimodal uh, approach with (laughs) with some drugs and some nerve blocks, and and I'm cool with that. Uh, Even if I'm having uh, a spinal as well, I want all of that in the mix. So I'm not not that fussed. How about you? If I were getting a knee done today, I would want a spinal followed by IPAC, a Dr. Canal, geniculars wow okay so don't give anything else away here because what we want people to hang out for is at the end of the podcast you're going to give us that drop on exactly the process involved when a patient comes into your block room uh, and what you do for them so effectively you are saying you'd like to have done what you do for your patients right yeah of course Okay, that's cool. Let's get into a bit more detail now. Assuming the patient is happy and there are no contraindications, does it really matter whether we give them a general anaesthetic or a spinal anaesthetic? Come on, tell me, what do you think about that? Yeah, I I think it's interesting. That answer has probably changed a little bit too over time. I I think I was much more vociferous in my objection to GA Mm -hmm. earlier on in my career. I think the way we give GA is a little bit different than, or it can be different than the way we Mm -hmm. did in the past. And of course with Tiva and and LMA, it's, you know, a healthy patient. It'd be hard to find an outcomes difference between that and a spinal. Of course, as you start to accumulate comorbidities and cardiopulmonary disease and that sort of thing, I think a spinal becomes much more attractive. And um, the the reason our default is still a spinal is the early recovery period. It's just, it's a softer landing, you know, so they, they kind of come out of the the Tiva sedation with the propofol and they're in the recovery room and their legs are still a little bit numb and starting to wear off. And it's just a an easier transition to the rest of their recovery than, than waking up wildly from a GA and going, oh my God, I didn't expect this. Okay, so there's a couple, that's really interesting. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. So the first of all, when I think back, there was, I, I agree with, with you with regards to changing how forceful you were about trying to, to push the spinals through. Because I remember the very early days when we gave a standard volatile anesthetic and I use, um, you know, propofol induction, uh, sevoflurane uh, maintenance, and I'd use morphine. I would, and if, you know, if I didn't specifically do blocks, because there was a group of our surgeons back then that didn't like us to do blocks, we give them a GA and opiates. My goodness me, those patients woke up and they were not, they, you know, they wake up exactly as you say, they, they didn't wake up going, oh, lovely. They woke up and they were sore immediately. That's the first thing they remember being was sore. You know, I was having to give them a fair amount of morphine on the table uh, to deal with some of the tourniquet discomfort and then the knife to skin. So that experience wasn't that great. And when you compared that with a patient having a spinal anesthetic, and I'm not talking about their post-op recovery, I'm talking about the immediate PACU arrival, they were so much nicer, right? They, they, they emerged from their sedation, if they'd had sedation, and they looked so much more comfortable. If I look at my general anesthetic now, 
I tend to use tea. I've moved nearly exclusively onto Profil and Remifentanil-based general anesthesia. So that means that intraoperative course is much smoother. Uh, and then we'll talk about this in a short while, but when you're using the blocks, the wake-up is it's less aggressive. It's a little bit more subtle. And there's a few other things I was going to cover in a short while that, that may have helped that. So I think my GAs from a while ago compared to my GAs now were very different. So I think in a straightforward ASA 1 fit and healthy patient, I'm less forceful about pushing a spinal now, mm. especially when we've done the unicompartmental knee replacements. Actually, I found if I give them a light GA and I do some blocks, they they seem to be ready to rock and roll. And I'm not worried so much regarding their pain afterwards. Now, that leads us very nicely on to if you have to choose analgesia versus mobility. So we can make a patient completely pain-free or we can give them the ability to mobilize with pain. What do you think is important? How should we factor uh, those those two variables? That's an interesting question because, I, you know, back in the early days of my career, we used to have this conversation with the physical therapists and surgeons about about this exact point. And their perspective was, oh, well, you, you shouldn't do a block because we want them up and moving mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And our pushback to that was, if patients are comfortable, even if there's some degree of motor impairment of the quadriceps with a femoral catheter, for example, they will walk faster and walk ultimately and better. Comfortable patients meet their rehab goals faster. So were you mobilizing patients with femoral nerve catheters? We were, but and of course you have to do it in a safe way and with some assistance and, and someone standing standing beside them with a you know there's a walker or a guardrail or something like that but we don't use a lot of femoral blocks for for knees just because we have other motor sparing options Mm -hmm. but i think what what's been lost is this idea that you can give someone uh, a femoral block and have some quads weakness and they can still get up and move Mm. okay cool so i think that's kind of answered my my viewpoint on that the next thing i wanted to ask you about was does it make a difference whether we use short-acting or ambulatory spinal anesthesia medications, or whether we use standard intrathecal medications like bupivacaine. You know, we don't have easy access to the short-acting intrathecal medications, but should I make a move to get hold of them? So, first of all, why do words sound sexier in a British accent than they do in in America? Ambulatory. I'm going to start saying ambulatory. Sir, I'm going to give you an ambulatory spinal. Oh, my Uh, God. Okay. (laughs) Controversy. Okay. There's some controversy about the ambulatory spinal. <laughs> Just don't put a tube in my trachea. <laughs> that sounds better than trachea, though. It does. I have to be. Have to be. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. So it, we've had we've gone through this evolution in the past several years of moving away from bupivacaine spinals uh-huh. to a shorter acting agent, and the whole reason is because while some of them do wear off in sort of two or three hours, there are a cohort of patients with a bupivacaine spinal that will have a sensory or a sympathetic block out to like six, seven, eight, nine hours. And they're just, we're getting orthostasis and they couldn't get up and move and we're being admitted overnight when they should have been going home. So so now we're using a, uh, a shorter acting agent, mepivacaine and wait for it, lidocaine. What? Shut the back door. Did you say lidocaine? I did. I did. In the spinal? Yeah. So what about TNS, man? I know handcuff me (laughs) that was our concern too and you know because we had this pounded into us as trainees is that you know lidocaine equals tns we have other options 
don't use lidocaine for spinals. That message is still being taught to trainees because when uh -huh. I suggest lidocaine to someone who hasn't been on the block rotation yet, they're like, w wait, we're, are, are we allowed to do that? <laughs> um, kind of thing. So, well, and I don't want to give too much away, but um, one of our fellows will be presenting some of our data at the, I'm going to give a shout out here to the ASRA spring meeting in April, 2023 in Hollywood, Florida. So I hope wow. to see you there. But we've collected some data over the last year and a half of doing this lidocaine spinal business. And we've had an, an incidence of essentially zero TNS. Okay. That's very cool. And I, I definitely look forward to hearing about that. It, yeah. It does sort of fly in the face of what we were taught about TNS and the risk and, and that sort of thing. And I think the reason we're not getting it is because we're so good at multimodal. So mm -hmm. all these patients are getting acetaminophen or paracetamol. <laughs> they're getting NSAIDs. They're getting dexamethasone. They're getting ketamine. Now, hold on a minute. Hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there. So I had a thought about this. You were talking about some of the standard bupivacaine spinals lasting longer uh, or having a sympathectomy that, that, that hang out. Now, I, I heard something discussed at one of the Ezra meeting or the Ezra meeting in or last year, and they were talking about dexamethasone prolonging the effect of a spinal. And had it occurred to you that perhaps administering intravenous dexamethasone to these patients having intrathecal medications or spinal anesthesia may have contributed to those prolonged spinal actions. Interesting question. I've never considered that, no. I, I just wonder whether that's something that may be relevant. Yeah, I, it's a, that's a good question. Although we do, we still give it intravenously to our lidocaine spinal patients and they, and don't have that I mean, no, I mean, th those spinals last 120 minutes Point zero. So you have to you have to have the workflow and a quick surgeon, and et cetera, et cetera. So if it's a revision total hip or total knee, uh, we're gonna choose something else typically. See, that's one of the things that does make me a little bit nervous about using ambulatory spinal anesthesia is that you got to get your timing spot on communication's got to be key you got to get the patient in block the surgeon's got to be ready and if there's any delay to that process that's what that's what gives me the uh, the heebie-jeebies as we would say over here in the uk <laughs> <laughs> so okay so i think we, we we posted some thoughts out there for people to, to come back at us with and i'd love to hear what people's experiences on whether they're using i'm going to move on to uh, another topic which i do think is controversial because a lot of the um, the guidelines and pathways that are suggested now are telling us to not bother putting in intrathecal opioids. And of course, in the UK, we have, or we at least certainly recently had, ready access to, to intrathecal diamorphine. Um, and I know um, other people using things like morphine. I don't think it's a massive deal to put opioids in the spinal, but, but I know you're going to tell me that it is. So what are your thoughts on intrathecal opioids? Well, uh, for starters, it, it, diamorphine, right? So if I, if I said to one of my patients, uh, ma'am, I'm going to put some heroin into your <laughs> spinal today, that would yeah. not be received very well. It's not, a, it's not a popular thing here, I think. It, it's uh, certainly, we don't do it in our practice, and I, I would tend to think that in most orthopedic practices in this country, we we don't and just because of the side effect profile. So you know, you okay. pruritus and delayed urinary retention and and you know possibly respiratory depression. Uh, you know the multimodal, the other multimodal agents are, mm -hmm. and of course all the twenty seven nerve blocks that we're doing, <laughs> yeah, really really help to to control the pain without having to pull that lever. Yeah, I have to be honest that there have been some situations where I think. Uh, 
I think having that benefit of a slightly prolonged um, action from intrathecal opioids is beneficial to us. I, I'm, I'm not somebody who's totally against it, but you know, maybe maybe we just haven't done the sheer volume. But one thing I, I wanted to ask is, you know, if the catheterization risk is significant in uh, patients receiving spinal anesthesia, such as those over a certain age or you know with um, with enlarged prostates, in those groups, you know, wouldn't you just give them a GA rather than run the risk that they may require catheterization and all the risks associated with infections afterwards? It's a good thought. It, but interestingly, one of the things that we've realized having switched from bupivacaine to lidocaine or mepivacaine is that our rate of straight cathing patients in the PACU has dropped significantly. By using a, by using a short-acting spinal uh, medication? Yeah. Okay. Do you deliver the same peripheral regional anesthesia irrespective of whether the patient receives a spinal anesthetic or a general anesthetic? Uh, yeah, I do. So whether they're getting a spinal or a GA, we still do the same blocks. Yeah. Okay, Jeff, I have a confession. I'm not sure if you're ready for this. So Powers confessions. <laughs> yes. Everyone sit down, grab a cup of coffee. Uh, don't judge me. So when I'm doing a spinal anesthetic, I know that the patients are going to be comfortable for that immediate post-operative period in recovery. So I do a spinal anesthetic plus some of the injections that we're going to talk about in a second. Now, when I do a general anesthetic, even though I'm adding in those extra peripheral regional anesthetic blocks maybe not quite as many as a 24-point blocktastic approach. But even though I'm, when I'm adding those things in, I don't get the same smooth, beautiful emergence that my spinal patients have if they when they're emerging from sedation. Um, so I have taken to doing, get ready for it, a lidocaine femoral nerve block. Now, this was inspired by one of my colleagues at Cleveland Clinic London, a um, very experienced regional anesthetist called Ravi Naya. And he, he's, he told me he did this. And actually, since I've started doing a lidocaine femoral nerve block for my GA patients, having these multimodal analgesia and these peripheral blocks, they actually wake up so much nicer. What do you think about that? Do you want to hear something crazy? I do the same thing. What? I do the same thing. Yeah, this is like yeah, a scene yeah. out of Frozen. Jinx, jinx again. Okay, no, don't get me started. Okay. You do the same thing? Yeah, for because uh, I just feel I do feel so bad for these patients that are waking up so acutely with and having to experience all that nociception all at once. So, and, and of course, the whole reason we got away from femorals was we don't want to prolong the quadriceps weakness into the you know day one, day two, day three. But a quick little lidocaine femoral smooths out that early recovery period. We're not really hampering their recovery all that much because no. it's such a short acting block. Well, I'm fascinated to hear that because, you know, what was interesting is when I have been doing this, let's just say the operation has taken an hour and a half, you know, just under two hours for you know, all things considered. And I'm only using such a low volume of lidocaine. Or by the time I see them in recovery, they've got some um, some hip flexion. They're doing some of the things you'd want them to be able to do. And actually, and they don't have the pain. So, how fascinating. Okay, well, you heard it here first, guys. Lidocaine femorals. The other use case for that that I've employed is once in a while, I'll get a patient with the adductor canal block or catheter, whatever you've done, in the recovery room who's got just rip-roaring quad spasm um, mm. because of the surgery. And, of course, our adductor is not doing anything about that. So I'll just hit them with a very low-dose lidocaine femoral block and boom the spasm goes away. So let's just imagine, so we're working on the premise, and, and I'm working my way down the, all of the different injections that we're going to do. We're working on the premise that people have got loads of time to do blocks. And actually, that maybe doesn't reflect anesthesia practice all over the world. So 
if an anaesthesia practitioner had limited time and or you know a limited experience what do you think is the minimum peripheral regional anaesthesia technique they should employ when delivering uh, you know care for a patient for total knee arthroplasty i think minimum is a doctor canal and then anything on top of that will add additional value i don't know how do you feel about that well i agree but now it's almost as if you knew what i was going to ask you next because this kind of segues quite nicely into I want to talk. So, when you say a duct canal, do you mean um, what most people talk about when they talk about a duct canal, which is actually a block at the mid thigh, which potentially is the at the apex of the femoral triangle, or are you talking about an adduct canal at the adduct canal? So, it, I think this is where, unfortunately, we've kind of made life a bit difficult for us with regional anesthesia in, in getting complicated. So, when you say duct canal, what do you mean? Are you suggesting we have a nomenclature? <laughs> controversy <laughs> i think we do have an immense controversy so much so that i think we're going to dedicate a whole episode to this but <laughs> but but yeah I, I i am so what do you mean when you say that yeah i know i this this debate annoys me i we're i think we're all doing the same thing we're all doing it at the mid thigh uh-huh. so technically probably yes femoral triangle are we ever going to get away from the the name adductor canal even though i know i know it's not technically in the hunter's canal down by the knee no, I think they're going to keep calling it that. So I yeah. think we're probably doing the same thing. Yeah. What we do is is mid thigh, so it's technically in the femoral triangle. Okay, so here's the here's the the thing that I think has caused some confusion amongst some very experienced regional anaesthetists. So I've practiced my femoral triangle slash adductor canal blocks based upon the learnings from the papers and and what I've got from the Blocktober videos. And you make a, a specific point about educating us about the how to make sure you specifically get the nerve to fastus medialis. There are some very experienced practitioners that would say, well, actually, you don't want to block the nerve to vastus medialis because that will contribute to more of a motor block. So what what do you think? Do we need to get nerve to vastus medialis? I know what the answer is, but I want you to explain to me why. Yeah. Oh, no, the answer is definitely yes. I mean, I've when we started deliberately targeting that, and getting local around it, our pain scores went down on day zero and day one. So, so it it, it is an an important part of that technique. Um, but your question is a good one because, of course, it is a a, a nerve that innervates a muscle. And so, the question is how much at the mid thigh, how many of the motor branches have already come off, and are you are you not getting those motor branches? And so <laughs> one day in the block area and how many stories I'm going to tell start with one day in the block area. We were talking about this question and decided to think about a way that we could test this. And so by blocking ourselves at oh different, <laughs> different points along. So starting at mid thigh, uh-huh. uh, so exactly midway between the inguinal crease and the uh, patella uh-huh. and then, and then going up, at sort of gradation wise up towards the the inguinal crease and uh it and we did this very scientific we did this quasi scientifically we had a forced dynamometer so we were measuring quadricep strength and it was the intent was to answer the question how close do you have to be to the inguinal crease before you truly get like quads weakness and uh, it was with a view towards doing a much more rigorous actual study in, in volunteers later on but so I can tell you that the answer, quick answer was you have to be really close okay. to the inguinal crease before you get a profound quads weakness. And I can tell you from 
quad sweetness is real. It's a real thing um, when you finally do get there. But <laughs> anyway, don't try this at home. Okay. I think okay. I think our I think our our podcast should probably just come with a blanket disclaimer. Warning. Don't don't try this at home. But it was uh, so we'll we're getting around to doing that actual study when in volunteers in a, in a rigorous way, but the cadaver evidence. And when I talk to anatomists, they also reinforce the idea that at mid thigh, any motor weakness you might get from getting that nerve to vastus medialis is minimal because a lot of those motor fibers have come off already. I wonder whether tunicae has an impact on that, um, in terms of proximal spread, but, um, that's that's interesting. So it's, it's nice to see that you've noticed that your pain scores dropped once you you made sure you added that in. So that's that's reason that's good enough for me. Okay, so we started off with our minimum. Now let's add something in. So let's say we're going to add in the IPAC. Uh, how important do you think the IPAC is, spe- especially in the context where your surgeons may want to do their posterior infiltration themselves? Uh, do you think it makes a difference? Because I've got some some of my surgical colleagues who are very keen to do that. We've started in adding in the IPAC as well, but it can be a bit of a bit of a faff to do it. And I, and I think you'll you'll talk to us about how you adapt to doing that. But I find sometimes doing an IPAC with a patient in the supine position. Do I frog leg the the knee? Do I go from underneath? Do I, I mean it's it's all a bit fiddly. But how important do you think the IPAC is? Uh, I first of all, is faff spelled with a silent P? No. Or is it is it F A? <laughs> well, I spell it F A F F, and you know, the Germanic spelling is more like the faff. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't, know. I, I, I don't think word. it's. I don't think it's with a silent <laughs> P. I mean, they always say oh, Amit's faffing about in the anesthetic room, so that's where I'm used to hearing it. But yeah, I- <laughs> <laughs> got it. I think the IPAC is. If I were to, if you had a gun to my head, said Jeff, you have to drop one of the blocks that you do. IPAC would be the one. Now, having said that, I don't think it's without value. We have looked at patient recovery profiles in terms of how far they can walk afterwards. Uh-huh. And it and it it looks like if you get an IPAC versus getting a saline IPAC, uh, you can walk farther on post up day one. But if you were gonna drop but if you were gonna drop something, that might be what you drop. That would be the one. Okay. Yeah. But but my question back to you or maybe back to your surgeons is like, why would they want to do that? Why would they want to infiltrate behind? So because we I've got I've got ultrasound guidance. I can see the popliteal artery. I can see the sciatic nerve. I can see all the stuff I don't want to hit. You can't. You're injecting you know, through the capsule. Why you would know, you not want to leave the analgesia to us, to the experts? It's a fabulous question, and I don't want to upset or offend any of my friends or my surgical colleagues uh, by by saying anything that might be um, might be misinterpreted. But I think there's an element of they were trained to do it a certain way and that's part of their training and that's what they're supposed to deliver and they'll come to meetings and they hear about how their colleagues in hospital x y and z do it a certain way and then and they say what about you and they say well actually i don't do anything because my anesthetist faffs around in the anesthetic room and does it all for me i wonder whether they there's an element that they want to do i don't know but i think actually the conversation is changing because when we first started certainly at my institution we weren't doing blocks for knees and over time um, as a bit of understanding has come in and we talked about the motor sparing component that has changed so I don't know why they'd want to do it but I think with time it may be that it falls under our control again and you know, listen, we're all looking after patients jointly 
But I agree, if you could do something kind of direct vision as opposed to inject, and then they wash the knee. They inject local answer and then they do this jet wash and then where does the local go? So I, I have some questions myself. So I want to move on, Jeff. So now we're getting on to probably injection seven and eight of the 24 uh, injection technique. I'm going to stop. <laughs> I'm going to stop ribbing you about this because I love it, actually. So I'm talking about the geniculars. So in um, in your teachings before, you've talked about um, uh, the supramedial, the inframedial, the supralateral and the nerve to um, vastus intermedius. You initially talked about dropping uh, the infralateral genicular nerve block, which I must confess I've done a couple of times. Um, what value do adding the genicular nerve blocks do when you're already doing a femoral triangle block plus or minus an IPAC? Do they make a big difference? So, a great question. And we we did a, uh, a randomized control trial uh, a couple of years ago led by our, one of our fellows, Millie Rambia, who, and showing that if you do the adductor in the IPAC and then add on those three genicular blocks, inferior medial, superior medial, superior lateral, with quarter percent bupivacaine versus saline sham blocks, you get a 60% reduction in your 24-hour uh, opioids in the first 24 hours, and then an additional uh, reduction in the second 24 hours. So it is a, it's an easy, impactful intervention that um, that, can, that packs a lot of punch. So I do like geniculars. I think that clearly, once my understanding of the anatomy became more sort of robust, and I realized, you know what, a lot of that knee capsule is innervated by geniculars, and we're just not getting them with our adductor and IPAC. Uh, it became an obvious target. Listen, I'm sold now, um, and I'm sold for a couple of reasons. Number one, by your by your scientific argument there and your, and your evidence of what you've seen in clinical practice. But number two, because I made a small modification. So I, um, most of my fellows will know that I'm a massive proponent of in-plane uh, peripheral regional anesthesia, and I used to do all my blocks within plane. But you know what? Um, what should have been the quickest part of my regional anesthesia recipe for neoarthroplasties and geniculars, I was messing around for much longer than I should have been trying to do these in-plane blocks. Bearing in mind, I'm trying to do a block around a curved surface um, of the bone, and, and I've, I found I was definitely faffing around a lot. And the one modification I added was doing out-of-plane geniculars, and boom, it suddenly dropped my time. So actually, now my fellows were... Well, laughing, they're like, you do in-plane for everything else. Now, why all of a sudden are you doing out-of-plane? You know, it was a suggestion that you, you gave, and actually it made such a big difference. So I think now, once I've done my, my IPAC and my, my femoral triangle block, adding in the out-of-plane geniculars has made a massive difference to my practice in terms of speed and certainly outcome as well. Yeah, yeah, we find the same thing. And uh, any block where you're hitting a bone as your end, as your endpoint for needle advancement is just easy. But that out of plane really makes a difference. What I w we were finding when we first started doing these in plane is rather than trying to line up two things, beam and needle, now you're asking to line up beam, needle, and femur. And yeah. that just became so complicated. Any slight shift in the probe, you lost your image. So I, I, I agree, out of plane is the way to go. Now tell me... Uh have you added in the infralateral genicular nerve block? Well, it's interesting you say that because, yeah. When I first started reading about genicular blocks, all the stuff came from the chronic pain world. And I think that their feeling and advocacy about omitting the inferolateral came from radiofrequency ablation and neurolytic blocks and that sort of thing. And gosh, you wouldn't want to 
knock out the mm-hmm. comma peroneal because it's so close. But I begin to think, you know what, man, I, I'm using ultrasound and I'm only using a little bit of, you know, a few mils of local anesthetic. Is it really a risk? And so we've added, I've, I've added that back in to my, to my okay. mix. And, and just, know. just uh, forgive my uh, anatomical uh, lapse in, uh, in knowledge here. I've just got to remind myself, when you're doing your infralateral genicular nerve block, which we're not advocating everybody does because of the risks associated with it, are you blocking it on the lateral, the infralateral aspect of the tibia or of the fibula? My recollection is you're doing it on the tibia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So just on the on the lateral aspect of that proximal tibia. So actually, again, this, this sort of, if you do with ultrasound, you should be so far away from the common perineal nerve that, that actually we should be blocking it if you're doing that small isolated volume. But I, I still understand why you want to exercise caution because it would be a disaster if there suddenly were a whole host of patients presented with foot drops because of this Gadsden-induced technique, right? <laughs> we would hear about it for sure. Uh, and <laughs> and we haven't. So, yeah. It, yeah, so it seems to be fine with that, that you know, three, four mils of volume and on that lateral aspect of the of the tibia. Okay, I've got two more questions uh, before we get to the Ganston recipe. So I hear a lot of people talking about when they're scanning, uh, looking for a ductal canal and femoral triangle, they're also looking over the uh, the surface of the sartorius muscle, looking for the anterior femoral cutaneous nerve. And they talk about just popping a little bit of local anesthetic above the fa- or below the fascia above the muscle. Is there a value in that? You know, we're talking about the geniculars, we're now talking about an additional genicular that we weren't doing before, we're talking about the nerve to vastus intermedius, do we need to do the antifemoral cutaneous nerve as well? <laughs> so, I, uh, I am somewhat, somewhat reluctant to get. I get some pushback sometimes about like adding yet another block. Uh-huh. But yes, the answer is yes. We we are. I've started to do the the anterior femoral cutaneous nerves. These cutaneous nerves or or cuties as we call them, uh-huh. um, seem to be pretty important, actually. And um, and, they're, and they're really fun. I start at the medial edge of the sartorius, and you can see in that uh, layer of fat just above the deep fascia of the thigh, these usually two or three little raspberries uh, hanging out there, and it's easy, really easy to, to drop in you know, two or three mils of whatever remainder of local you have in your syringe on the on those so you'll you'll be shocked to know that i blocked myself oh my goodness. one day they, well i was curious because i i heard about people using cryoablation of these for total knees and I'm, I'm my instinct was like man come on these are cutaneous nerves yeah. how much could this contribute so i took an, a nerve block needle with a nerve stem which was really interesting because as you get close to them you get this little paresthesia in the territory that they serve wow. so okay. uh you could you could feel it kind of going down to your knee and each different one had a slightly different pattern of innervation i put a few mils of quarter percent bp on these at 4 p.m it sure enough had like this densely numb anterior thigh and down wow. to including including the kneecap and went home that day and you know went to bed and i had to explain to my wife why i had, <laughs> had these poke holes all over my side which she's used to it by this point you know it's, it's always something i woke up the next morning and i had kind of forgotten about it right get out of bed i'm like oh wow my thigh is still densely numb like i could wow. take pliers and i didn't but you could have taken pliers and like cranked on that skin and nothing and it lasted till 2 p.m so i had 22 hours of really dense skin numbness on the thigh and kneecap and i thought to my I thinking to myself man that has to have some value just I mean, just for incisional pain alone, yeah. but super easy to do and safe. You're not going to 
Yeah, there's no motor stuff there. So, and what level? What level of the thigh are you doing this? There have been different descriptions, and uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Benson's group out of out of Denmark. Uh, I was talking to him at the Ezra meeting in in Greece this past summer, yes. and he is convinced that there is much more to cutaneous innervation in terms of what it provides. And I, I tend to agree with him. So he's got a, a slightly different way of doing it. But I, I just go mid-thigh okay. and um, and look for those little cuties in the um, subcutaneous fat. Okay, well, that, well I, uh, that's, something, that's something to watch for. Hashtag block those cuties. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, listen, one more, one more question before, or one more topic, really, um, before we move on to uh, the Gadsden uh, gold standard arthroplasty approach, which is, I'd heard somebody, and I, I try to work out whether it was Thomas Benson's group from Denmark or who it was, talking about doing a isolated tibial nerve block instead of an IPAC for posterior knee pain. And certainly, if I recall correctly, there was a study when they had a whole host of patients who'd maybe had uh, femoral triangle or duct canal blocks, and in the PACU, they added in an isolated tibial nerve block and they looked at pain scores. Does that ring a bell? And what, th- what do you think about that? Yeah, we uh, we had done that for a, for a time. At the group in Hartford with Sanjay Sinha oh, and yes. Jonathan Abrams, they had, they had published on that selective tibial nerve block. And... Um, the, their problem in Sanjay's comment was, and we found the same thing was, it did work to cover the back of the knee, but it just the patients did not enjoy having a numb sole of the foot. Mm. It, it just felt it was like weird that feeling, and so that sort of prompted them to then go on to innovate the IPAC. And so yeah, we, so we did it for a while, but then you know I think IPAC gets what you need for the back of the knee without the unwanted you know foot numbness. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, I mean, the other thing I've got to, before we get onto your recipe, the thing that I'm always conscious of is, well, especially when I've done my multiple needle marks for my um, my genicular nerve blocks, is you've really got to make sure the knee is presentable when you go into theatre. Otherwise, the surgeon will say, "Has there, was there a mosquito in the anesthetic room? Why are there so many pinpricks and bleeding marks everywhere? So you've got to really make an effort to, to make sure you present the knee in a nice in a nice way, right? That's a, absolutely. That's a very polite British way of saying that. I think our surgeon would not be quite so <laughs> restrained uh, and ha- and haven't been at times. I think there's a lot of uh, optics to be managed there. Yes. So I will, um, you know, I'm quite conscious of not rolling the patient back to the OR with bloody sheets and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Okay, Jeff. So listen, I want to, we, we made our audience wait long enough. I want you to imagine I'm giving you a guy, Henry. So Henry is your patient and Henry's coming to you for anesthesia for knee arthroplasty. Tell me what you're going to do to Henry. And the sequence. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, first off, I'd say, all right, Henry, uh, you, <laughs> you're going to get a total knee today. I don't know how. <laughs> Hold on a somehow, minute. Wait, somehow, wait, wait. Wait, somehow I drifted from, <laughs> from uh, I don't know, Yorkshire accent over to Australian. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to stop the accents now. Okay. But uh, Henry is. Um, <laughs> that sounds like something from Mary Poppins. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Oh, my. That's right. Um, so, so the first thing Henry's going to get is we're going to have him get up and use the bathroom yes. and void Ooh. his bladder. That's just to, again, to reduce the need for straight cathing in the, in the PACU. And then we'll have him sitting on the, come back from the bathroom, sit on the side of the bed with the operative side towards the foot of the bed. And you'll see why that becomes important Ooh. in a second. So, okay. uh, then we'll do our lidocaine spinal, 80 milligrams of lidocaine 
is is our sort of standard dose. Uh-huh. And then I'll have Henry flop over onto his side, so on his on his shoulder, so that he's lateral with the operative side up. And uh-huh. that gives me access to the back of the knee with a ultrasound probe so that I can easily do the eye pack. And I, I, I like an eye, I like doing my eye packs in the lateral position. Oh, I see. So that's why you want operative. Okay, okay. So you, so you get, get him to flop onto your side, operative side uppermost. You've already got his feet towards. So to, to, just explain to me again so I can get my head around it. So when he sits on the bed uh, for the spinal, you've got him sitting so his operative side is closest to the foot of the bed is that right correct yeah that's right so then you can just drop him on his side and then the operative side is uppermost and you can smack in that eye pack ah you got in the lateral position which is so much easier to do right it is so much easier especially in a big patient so i want to love the medial frog leg eye pack (laughs) approach but it just with the size of patients that we're doing that by the time the probe is in that popliteal crease there's so much tissue hanging over the probe i can't you know, it's challenging to line your needle up mm-hmm. and um, and you have sort of limited range of motion with your probe. You can't, you know, with the knees having been bent, it, you can't really move it all that much. So I like I like a straight leg, lateral, and that way I can slide back and forth in the back of the knee and, and have freedom of movement. One X, one X. I back and then turn supine and then we'll do the adductor. Uh-huh. We'll sort of hook up our, our nerve stimulator so we can stimulate that nerve to vastus medialis and identify it and then uh, get in there, do the adductor canal and then we'll um do the geniculars and then finish off with the cuties and that's wow. it we'll roll them back that's the full recipe so you are doing spinal eye pack uh, adductor canal with nerve to vastus medialis beforehand then the geniculars the nerve to vastus intermedius and the cuties at the end wow that's it that's that's a package how long does that take 45 minutes <laughs> just, just kidding i think our institutional record for all of that is somewhere in the eight to nine minute range wow. that is a mic drop moment now listen I, I i recognize fully recognize that we are fortunate to have block nurses and trainees that can help position and move and block and all that kind of stuff so you know with the constraints of each different healthcare institution that may not be possible in eight or nine minutes but uh it does work well so the one thing I forgot to ask you, which I know people are going to want to know, is if you can give me an idea. You told us about the dose that you that you drop in the spinal, but what about the volumes of local anesthetic for those different blocks? I know it's a ballpark, and it'll depend upon safe doses for each patient. But as a ballpark, yeah. So, uh, so twenty mils for the adductors. So we're and splitting that up, sort of ten and ten for the nerve to vastus and the saphenous, and then uh, you know fifteen to twenty mils for the IPAC, mm-hmm. and then three to four mils each for the uh geniculars and then again same just a f- couple of mils each for the cu- the cuties so it ad- it does add up it ends mm-hmm. up being about 60 mils of local and so you do have to be conscious of dose limits and concentration and that sort of thing uh, probably in a different episode we'll talk about catheters and yeah. adjuvants and that sort of thing but so those are the volumes at least that we're using interesting and then all your patients will get multimodals as well right so you totally what do you give them paracetamol paracetamol and uh, the, they get an NSAID. Uh, our NSAID is meloxicam, uh-huh. typically. They all get a dose of dexamethasone IV in the operating room yes. once they've been sedated. And then um, low-dose ketamine, so usually between 20 to 40 milligrams of ketamine as a single injection bolus. And then carry on the acetaminophen and the NSAIDs 
throughout their post-operative recovery. And what about the O word? Everyone does get rescue opioids for, for uh, because let's, let's face it, we are doing motor sparing blocks, but those motor sparing blocks are also sensory spraying blocks uh, to a certain extent, right? So there is the need for the occasional oxycodone. Yeah. We do we do get some patients through opioid free, but uh but most patients expect to and that's part of it, right? Their expectations, but yes. expect to want to use a little bit of opioid to get them through uh their, you know, a particularly vigorous rehab session or whatnot. It's interesting actually. We we're gonna close out on probably the most important comment of all, which is patient expectation. So if you set the patient expectation correctly from the outset, that will completely revolutionize that the, the patient experience. If a patient is expected to feel zero pain or if they've been told they're not going to feel anything, they're going to be very disappointed with this kind of recipe, right? Whereas if they know it's there's gonna be something, they know what's normal, then the outcome is very different. So patient expectation is key. Yeah. 100% part of my spiel is I'll say to the patient, so we're going to do all these blocks and it's going to help knock your pain down from what would be a nine out of 10 down to like a four. And so sort of anchor their expectations at about a four, which I think is, Ooh, I think is reasonable. Nice. And yeah. so if they beat that, that's, yeah, it's great. But I think I honestly, most patients are at about a four after well listen this is really for me it's been an eye opener as well jeff i think it's probably about time this must be our longest podcast ever um and that's three so that's not that not that difficult records so. <laughs> so just wait <laughs> so why don't we wrap up episode three we want people to to have a think about the type of things they want us to discuss and and to hit us up so there's a few ways they can get in contact with us jeff right yeah absolutely so we you can get us at um twitter at block it underscore hot underscore pod uh we're on youtube at block it like it's hot no and apostrophe you, you always you always give me the difficult one we're also on insta <laughs> at block it like it's hot with underscores in between each word i'm not going to say it out loud but it's block underscore it etc like it's hot with no apostrophe either and um, we want people to to hit us up with the with the hashtag uh, on any of those social medias make sure they use that hashtag um and also we need people to to subscribe to the podcast and to give us ratings as well that helps get get us spread around to as many people as possible right yeah, absolutely. And let us know what you're doing for total knees. If you've got some cool recipe that works amazingly for your patients that we didn't discuss uh, or or comments or questions about what we've, what we've said, please, please let us know on the uh, on all those channels and we'll, we'll discuss it on our next one. Excellent. OK, Jeff, until next time, uh, we'll uh, we hope they all block it like it's hot. Until next time, guys. <laughs> See you. See you next time.